You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be with you. I knew I was going to do that. Great to be with you this morning as we uh, open God's Word, Judges chapter 9. Um, we'll be continuing this story of Gideon, and we're continuing it through Gideon's, the story of Abimelech, one of Gideon's sons. And so we'll be beginning in Gideon chapter 8. We're going to go back and look at a little bit from last Sunday as, as uh, Chris brought us to the end of Gideon's life, and we want to kind of set the context a little bit um, for this morning. As we go through Judges, I think there are a couple of things that I'd like for us to remember and think about, and, and those are that this is a real historical narrative. This is a story of real men and women that lived in human history, and in that way, it's not uh, a direct parallel where we can say this is prescriptive and, and you are this and, and this is this person. And, and so there are some ways that we can kind of uh, forget that it's a historical narrative and start looking for just the direct parallel in our lives. And so part of this is this is a historical story of God's work in bringing about the salvation of his people through the Messiah, through the coming of Christ, through his people in Israel and his preserving them and working providentially through history to the culmination of Christ's incarnation and the birth of Christ, his life and death and resurrection, the establishment of God's kingdom and the church, and of which we're gathering today as this outpost, this, um, this little embassy of Christ's kingdom here in, here in McDonough. And so I don't want us to, to miss that. This is, a just, this is a historical story, and so as we read it, um, we need to read it that way. And secondly... We, we should be looking, we should be looking for um, the, these applications. What are the implications of God's work? God is the same yesterday and today and forever, and our hearts are not different from the Israelites, you and I. We're not a more sophisticated people, we're not a purer people, we're not, a, uh, we're not any differently, uh, we're not any different um, apart from God's grace and, and light. So um, with that, we're going to be looking now at uh, this story from Judges 9. It's a long narrative. It's a long story, and I'm going to try to be, I'm going to be kind of, try to get through it and, and not, not bore you, try, try not to drone on, but here's what I was thinking. I think some of you probably know that, that um, all three of my children love drama, right? They love drama, and I don't mean the bad kind of drama. I mean like theater, the stage. Like they would love to be up here and like acting out this story for you, and I, I was, as I was preparing, I thought, that would, be, that would be super cool. And, and so I was thinking through this story in Judges 9, and it really is a story that is like, like so many. I mean, it has, it has um, kings, it has war, it has treachery, it has spies, it has murder and tyranny, and it has a hero. And, and as we go through Judges 9, and you kids who are with us, we're so glad for family worship. Be looking for those things, those elements, and particularly looking for the hero that we're going to talk about that Chris has already alluded to. But we're going to take this narrative as three acts. So this is a play. This is a real play that really happened on the stage of life. Three acts, and we're going to start by setting just a little bit of background, and that background begins in Judges chapter 8. Let's start in verse um, 28. 
verse 28 says, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, we're going to hear that a lot. Jeroboam is Gideon, so you've got to remember that. He's going to be referred to as Jeroboam through the rest of the story, okay? So um, Jeroboam, that is the fighter of Baal, the one who opposes Baal and fights Baal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. He refused to be king, but he kind of lived like a king. We remember that. Chris talked about, Chris talked about that being humble in our words, but proud in our actions. And so he taxed the people. He created a golden ephod, and he, he essentially lived as a king while saying he wasn't. And so uh, Gideon had 70 sons, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. So here's a main character for us, Abimelech. And what does Abimelech mean? Well, Abimelech means my father is king. So the man who refused the title, said, I'm not the king, God will rule over you, not me, has a son by his concubine, his servant in Shechem, uh, and he names his son, my father is king. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah of the Abizrites. I could normally say that, but this morning, no. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the, to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So this is the background. Gideon, Jeroboam dies, he's buried, and what happens immediately? Immediately the Israelites begin set up uh, and go worshiping other gods. They, they make Baal Berith their god. Baal Berith means uh, is a a covenant God, so it's maybe a mixture a little bit of the covenant God revealed in Israel and the God of the Canaanites, Baal. So, Lord of the covenant. And they, they started worshiping this Baal Berith. Second thing, it says that the people of Israel did not remember. They did not remember the Lord, their God. And this is something I was thinking, this is, this is like an active not remembering, right? This isn't just, this isn't really an I forgot. This is like when you're talking to your child and you're like, why did you disobey me? And they go, uh, I forgot. Like that kind of forgetting. It is the forgetfulness of, I heard what you said, but it had no bearing on what I wanted, and so I just chose not to do it. And, and, and so this is a suppression of the truth. This is like Romans 1, where they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They are choosing to forget, willfully forgetting God's faithfulness to them and they are disobeying. And so what is it that they forgot? Well, they forgot the God they served. Joshua 24, we probably, one of the most famous verses, certainly in Joshua, maybe in, maybe in uh, parts of the Old Testament, there was, uh, uh, in Joshua 24, all the people came together and they made a covenant. And where'd they make that covenant? They made that covenant at Shechem, the, the place where this story is gonna take place. And they said, the people said to Joshua, they all gather Joshua calls the people, and the people say to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. 
And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone under the terebinth in Shechem will be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with God. So I want you to remember that. File that away. Joshua, the people, they make this covenant with God under the terebinth at Shechem, and they set up this stone to be a witness to them. So that's the background. That's the setting. The death of Gideon, the idolatry of the people, they're forgetting God. They're worshiping other, other gods, worshiping Baal. So that's, that's our play. Let's open scene one, the treachery of Abimelech. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, what's better for you, that all 70 sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I'm your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother, right? That's a, I mean, yeah, that sounds good. Why have, why have these 70 guys, these 70 sons rule over us when we could just have our brother, you know, Jer- we could just have Abimelech rule over us? That, that, that seems like the better, the better thing. But here's the reality. This is a false dilemma, right? He's, he's doing a political, he is seizing power. Abimelech wants to be king, He was named, my father is king, and somewhere along the way, he's forgotten God, he's rebelled, and and now he believes he ought to be king. And so he goes, and he gives them this this false dilemma. There's only two choices you have. You can be ruled by the 70 guys who are the sons of Jeroboam, and he uses this name, the one who fights Baal, the one who fights the God you worship. Do you want to be ruled by his 70 sons or just by me? Well, those aren't the only two options, right? We have just earlier, Gideon in chapter 8, verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, establish a dynasty here, become our rulers. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. And so uh, Abimelech, he doesn't mention this option, he doesn't say, or you could, you know, be faithful in, in having God rule over you. No, he says, you pick one of these two. And so and so what do they do? Well, the, the leaders are convinced, and they um, gave him, verse 4, and they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So this treachery of, we see here, Abimelech, he is financed by the, the temple of this god, Baal Barith, and he goes, he hires these reckless guys, and he goes and he murders his brothers, and he comes back to Shechem, and where do they make him king? Right there under the terebinth, right beside the stone that was erected by Joshua as a witness should the people deal treacherously with God. And so that's where, 
uh, that's where Gide- um, Abimelech uh, begins his rule. And a few things, just to note, we're not talking about a judge today. We're talking about the first king of Israel, a failed king of Israel. He didn't judge Israel. God did not raise Abimelech up in response to, uh, to the people's repentance. No, Abimelech wanted to seize rule. He wanted to be king. And so he was, um, he, was not, he was not a judge. This is not a story of a judge. This is a story of a tyrannical king um, that the people of Shechem have financed and now recognized his bloody seizing of powers, murdering his brothers, and now he's, now he's king. So what, that's the end. Scene one, Abimelech's king. Scene two, we have this one brother, Jotham. Uh, verse seven, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood of, on top of Mount Jerizim. This is the prophetic curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. And, and the city, Shechem's down in this valley. There's two mountains. These are the mountains where the Israelites gathered six tribes on one side, six tribes on the other. One side shouted a blessing and the other side shouted a curse. There was this specific acoustic down here. And so you could hear and, and this city is still there and the mountain's still there. And they say you can still shout out over and the whole city can hear. And so, so um, we have here Jotham, the youngest son, when he hears that Abimelech, his murderous brother, has been made king, he goes and he stands on top of Mount Gerizim and he cries aloud and he says to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. What a, this picture, this is actually, um, this is one of the oldest parables recorded in literature anywhere. This is, this is a story that Jotham is, is telling to illustrate um, the people of Shechem, their, their hunger for a king. They want to be ruled over. And so, so we have this, the fig trees, fatness and material prosperity, the fig tree, safety and rest, the vine, abundance and rejoicing and, and fruitfulness. And each of these in their place say, no, we, we, we would not rule over you. We have our place. So they go to the bramble, the bramble that says, come take refuge in my shade. What kind of shade does a bramble bush have? Nothing but thorns. It's good for nothing. It produces no fruit. It, 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 it's good for starting a fire. And, and, and that's about it, right? It's, uh, it, it hurts you. It, it's full of thorns and, and, uh, and has no role. It's a curse. Um, that uh, a, a part of the fall. So it's a worthless plant. But this worthless plant says, come and take refuge, and in the brambles offer to rule. So what's the meaning of the parable and the prophetic curse? Verses 16 to 21, Jotham continues, speaking out from the mountain. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, 
And by the way, you didn't. And if you've dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, which you certainly did not, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And then Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Boom, end of act two. That's the intermission, okay? So this is the, so he comes out, he pronounces this parable, which is really a curse. We see that. He knows they have not acted well. They've not treated the family as they deserved. And so he says, would fire come out of Abimelech and devour Shechem? And would fire come out of Shechem and devour Abimelech? And then he runs away. And that's where we are, this intermission, this, uh, this break. And we see that in verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Three years, Jotham is in hiding. Three years, the, the gods of Baal, Baal Barith are being worshipped. Three years, Abimelech is ruling in wickedness and in rebellion. Three years, it would seem, God's absent. Even, even more through this whole story, we could see that there's very little mention of God, right? It, it's, it's this story of this internal fight in Israel, and it would seem that God, that God isn't there. For three years, can you imagine what Jotham might have been thinking uh, during, during those three years? Okay, so intermission's over, downfall of Abimelech. Let's pick it up. Verse 23 opens with this incredible statement, one that should inform us. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. A little intro. This is the scene we're about to enter. And this is a long one, so you're going to have to hang with me, okay? But know this. This all started because, there was, because God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Neither of them, they're both guilty, they both deserve judgment, and this evil spirit enters between them. God controls even evil to accomplish his purposes. Judgment for the, right, for the unrighteous and good for his people. Let's, uh, verse 25, and the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech, so basically, they set up these ambushes, and they started robbing the people that Abimelech would be taxing, and so he's not getting tax revenue, and nobody thinks he's a good king because he can't protect the roads, and he's, they're just creating problems for Abimelech. There's this, this evil spirit between the people that helped Abimelech and Abimelech. So that's what's going on here, and they, 
they robbed everybody and it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives and the leaders of Shechem put their confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and they ate and they drank and they reviled Abimelech. That's the way it is, right? When you, you have worthless people that finance your murderous, tyrannical regime, they find a new guy that they like a little better and they then revile you. And so there's this evil spirit between them and Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve them? Basically, he says, this guy is not really one of us. He really is the son of Jeroboam, the one who fought our God. And, and why should we serve him? Let's serve our older, let's serve the old families, the, the ones who started Shechem, Let's, let's serve them, but let's not serve Abimelech. Why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, an officer of Abimelech, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of, uh, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Zebul, the officer of Abimelech, he sends some spies. He says, Abimelech, they're turning everybody against you. So Abimelech and all the men, verse 34, who were with him, rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul says to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. It's like, you're, you're wrong, man. That's, that's nothing. I, I don't know what you're seeing. Some shadows. Then Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where's your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. So there's this, this uh, little revolt happening in Shechem. The spies go out. They tell Abimelech. Abimelech raises the army. He surprises them in the morning. He wins an easy victory. He drives Gaal, the son of Ebed, out. And his officer, the, the mayor of the city, if you will, Zebul, he... Uh, he drives out Gaul and his relatives, and, and they're no longer there at Shechem. So that could be the end of the story, right? I mean, and Abimelech continues to rule, but no. After this easy victory, uh, the next day, the people probably thought things would go back to normal. But Abimelech is angry. Um, he still, he, he has it out now for the city of Shechem. Why? Because there's an evil spirit that God has sent and judgment upon Abimelech and upon 
Shechem. Verse 42, on the following day, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told. He took his people and, and divided them into three companies and he set an ambush in the field and he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. They cut the people off. So they're out in the fields farming. They, he blocks their return to the city with one company while the two companies rushed upon them, all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and he killed the people who were in it and he raised the city. By raising, it's one of those words that means tearing it down instead of building it up. You'd think raising, right? That's kind of goes up, but no. So he, he tears down everything in the city and he sows it with salt, salt that would make the fields not grow, salt that would destroy the land. So that he makes this, I mean, this is a, this is just, he destroys the place. It's not like a little bit of, you know, okay, we dealt with Gaal and the guys who were with Gaal. No, this is, we're going to kill everybody. We're going to destroy the city because they came against me. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith, that is Baal Barith. So there's the strong tower in the city. It's the, the tower of their god. And everybody goes running into that. And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down a bundle of wood and they followed Abimelech, putting it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died about a thousand men and women. An evil, an evil man who, who is acting in um, judgment uh, over the people of Shechem. So Abimelech, he was an instrument of God to judge the wickedness of the people of Shechem for their idolatry, for all their evil. Their evil returned on their heads and they died in the tower of Baal Barith, the very tower where they worshiped and the very tower that they used to finance and pay for Abimelech to go and kill his brothers. Verse 50. And it isn't clear why Abimelech, in the next verses, he goes after the city of Thebes, a city just to the north of Shechem. Maybe they were involved in the rebellion. It isn't clear. But then, verse 50, Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was another strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it, and he drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. It worked once, why not do it again? And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And then he called quickly to, his young man, to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And thus ends the story of Abimelech. The curtain falls, verse 55. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. What does it mean, verses 56, to tell you what's happening? Verse 56 Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, 
the son of Jeroboam. Unseen by our eyes, even this evil shows the hand of providence in the glove of history or of circumstance. This is not, this isn't just when we look back at this story, we say, is God absent? No, God isn't absent. He is working in judgment, judgment upon Abimelech, judgment upon uh, the people of Shechem. It's a historical narrative, a real happening, and God used this idolatrous and rebellious people. He orchestrated everything in human history. He took great evil, and he worked it to uh, preserve his people, leading to the very real historical birth of the hero of the story, to the very real historical birth of Christ Jesus. So what can we learn? What are some things that, some implications from the story? Just a few. So we had the three, the three scenes we had, and now just three simple and quick um, implications to be learned from, from this story of Abimelech, this tragedy. The first thing is this. The problem is not out there. It's in here, okay? Abimelech came up from within Israel. The problem was not actually the foreign nations outside. The problem was the sinful hearts of the Israelites. And that problem is the same today. It is easy for us today to say, oh, we're persecuted and the problems are all out there, while inside our hearts are full of idolatry that we're refusing to deal with, things that we love more than God, things like materialism and comfort and even joy things that we want um, to make ourselves righteous before God, our self-righteousness. So our hearts are a perpetual idol factory, Calvin would say. Born in sin, the human condition is by its nature driven by idolatry. And we see here, you know, in thinking through this story, like who do you identify with? Who, who is it when you read this? Well, in, in my heart, in our hearts, we ought to see that we are like the people of Shechem saying, come and rule over us. If we won't worship the one true God, then we'll be ruled over by many gods, by any God, because we, we are looking for a king, and we would, make, we would make anything a king over us. It was said that in uh, the 1900s, the Times of London posed uh, the question to a number of prominent authors, what's wrong with the world today? And that's maybe a question that we might want an, an, an answer to, right? We would say, yeah, let's, let's put some smart people together and say, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, it said, responded to their inquiry, a great writer of the 1900s with a one-sentence essay. Dear sir, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. The problem is not out there. The problem is in our hearts. We're the problem and it's manifested in the sin and the idolatry that, uh, that we find, the worship of everything other than the one true God. So our hearts can be this idol factory. We can see all of human history as this, this fight between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Baal, the worship of God versus the worship of material things, the worship of God versus the worship of comfort and safety. Um, and then we also see here that our idolatry can have this generational impact. Let's not miss that, parents, fathers, as we see uh, Gideon building this, making this ephod, and it says that it was a stumbling to his, to his family. The, the, 
the worship of Baal Barith that Gideon allowed, funded his son destroying and murdering his 70 sons. His idolatry grew in his children into this murderous and awful uh, actions of Abimelech. So idolatry can have this generational impact. And that's not to say that we are held guilty, but that is to say, as, as we see with King David and his idolatry and sin with Bathsheba, it has a generate, it can impact future generations, and we, should, and we should take our sin seriously and our idolatry seriously. Don't play with sin. Put it to death. Last, I just point out quickly that our idolatry is deceptive. Its fruit is fighting and war and murder. James 4, verses 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Which is what this whole chapter was about, fighting and quarreling. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the, with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is hatred of God. It is warring against God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't dabble with idolatry. First. Secondly, God is not absent even when we refuse to worship and obey him. God's presence and judgment are not always apparent to us. They're not always clear to human eyes. Uh, Job 21, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Doesn't it seem that way sometimes? Like we don't see God's judgment Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them, says Job. Or in Jeremiah chapter 12, it says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would, he sat waiting, right? He would have pled with God, I'm sure, saying, Why? Why is it that Abimelech is king? Why would you leave him there? Why would you prosper him? Why would you allow this to continue, God? And so we don't always see the, that God is present and that uh, he will judge the world in righteousness. But we know, Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's judgment isn't just in the future. It is a present reality, whether we see it with our eyes and whether we understand it or not. So God is not absent even when his judgment isn't apparent to human eyes. Secondly, God's judgment may appear slow, but it's slow because God is patient and merciful. God right now is fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's delaying judgment is a mercy. It's a mercy to, to allow for the unrepentant to repent and to turn to Christ. Secondly, um, while God's presence and judgment are not always clear to us, and he is far more patient and slow than we would be, his judgment is sure. It isn't a maybe. There is a judgment coming. There is a day appointed when all sin will be dealt with. 
either on the heads of those who have broken God's law or on the perfect substitute, Jesus Christ. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Don't mistake the mercy of God in being slow with God being absent and judgment not coming. There will be a day of judgment. This is a warning to those of you who would sit in unbelief or in rebellion or believe your sin isn't that big a deal and because your idolatry isn't the idolatry of killing your brothers but you might hate them a little in your heart, you think that judgment isn't coming. Judgment is coming, it's sure, and there is no getting away with it. There was a period of time where Abimelech surely thought everything's working just the way I thought it would. There were years where he said, God's absent and there is no judgment for my sins. But we see here in God's word clearly that God is the one who appoints a day of judgment and who judged Abimelech and the people of, the people of Shechem. An encouragement to believers in all of providence, in hard things, in good things, we often go to Romans 8.28, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a promise and a reality of Scripture. And it's for those who are in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, then if your faith is not in Christ Jesus, there are days where your evil will just return to your head, where your world will fall apart and it's a judgment on you. But believer, we never have those days. We may have, there may be impacts from our sin, and, and, and we have to repent of those, but we never feel the judgment of God return to our face, to return to our head, crushing us in judgment, because God is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a promise to us who are in faith in Christ Jesus. And so um, there's an encouragement there for us. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that hard things won't happen. It doesn't say there won't be tragedy and sorrow. In fact, there's a promise in Scripture that for believers we will experience um, difficulty. And yet it is working together for good. It is never the judgment of God on us. We don't have to look at our lives and say, oh, maybe this thing that happened is because God is judging me for my sin. No. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, the penalty due your sin is all borne by Christ. Um, and we can praise God for that, and we can trust his providential work in all of our life. Last thing as we, as we finish up, in the darkness of Judges 9, I want us to see this promise, this continuation of a theme that we see through all of redemption, a promise that we saw beginning in Genesis 3, that through the seed of the woman, God will crush the head of the serpent. And so in Judges 9 at the end, what was Abimelech's end? This tyrannical king, this evil, it says a certain woman, a woman appointed by God, that's all we know about her, a certain woman threw a millstone and it crushed the tyrannical king. Where did it crush him? Not on his leg, not his chest. It crushed his head. It would point us and remind us that there's coming a day, that there was coming a day when there would be Christ Jesus born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. 
and would establish his good reign, who would, who would establish his righteous kingdom in justice for all, for all time. Since the fall, the history of the world is one of war, good king and rebellious tyrant. And the, the tyrant has just come to seek to, to steal and kill and destroy. And that tyrant's head has been crushed by Christ Jesus, by the one who lived a life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die and rose again victorious over Satan, over death, and over sin. There is not in Judges, it's going to get dark from here, Judges 9 to the end of the book. These are hard times for Israel, and yet here we see this gospel hope that God will not leave his people, but he will accomplish in faithfulness all that he has promised. He will send one who will live in perfection, obeying all of his law, and he will punish that one, Christ taking on the punishment, the justice due our sin, and giving to us his righteous life so that we can stand before God whole and complete. Colossians 1 says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the domain of Abimelech, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is our great hope, dear believer, um, is in Christ Jesus, the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Would you pray with me? Father, we, as we consider your word and as we look at your work, we, we praise your name. We, Father, would you work in our hearts that we would put away sin, that we would not be like Abimelech and the people of Shechem, um, worshiping other gods, we would walk in your ways, that we would worship you, that we would love you, that we would uh, that we would trust in the work of your son alone. Father, thank you that you have established your kingdom. Father, thank you that you have, um, that you have not left us in the kingdom of darkness. Uh, Father, you are so good and so gracious, so patient, that you are uh, the judge of all the earth and you will judge every sin and yet you have made in Christ a way for us to be reconciled to you. We praise you for it. Uh, would you... Would you help us to think on your word? Would you convict us from your word? Would your spirit be at work in our hearts as we, as we um, consider your word? Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>